0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Harmony Biosciences.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter here at The Post. Today is Rare Disease Day, and I'm pleased to be joined by the Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Robert Califf, to discuss rare diseases, artificial intelligence, and more. Dr. Califf, welcome to Post Live.
2: Thanks, Dan, good to be with you.
1: Let's start by reviewing the rare disease landscape and even defining some of the key terms here. So a rare disease, according to FDA, affects fewer than 200,000 Americans. There are perhaps 10,000 rare diseases across the United States, more than 30 million Americans affected by a rare disease, but about 5% of rare diseases have an FDA approved treatment. Doctor, when you think about those numbers what what does that say to you what does success look like when it comes to combating rare disease
2: well i think you can look at it from two dimensions one is just the number of diseases and the changes in science there's so much that we can do we need to tackle in essence one disease at the time and find a treatment that's effective or even a cure perhaps but of course for an individual family and one of the ten thousand uh pe- uh uh, diseases, would be very concerned um, about any delay in getting an effective treatment available. Uh, available. So we're uh, energized and excited by the science, uh, feel the pressure and think the pressure is appropriate, but also given our mission, we need to be careful with the science to make sure we do it right.
1: Do you have an achievable goal in mind when it comes to rare disease? Could 15% of rare diseases have an FDA-approved treatment in the near future?
2: Dan, I, I feel like it's not, probably not right for us to set that target because um, it's good to think of the FDA, I think, as a referee. In other words, um, we evaluate um, data that people bring to us. There's that old saying, um, God we trust, all others must bring data. Uh, The development programs themselves are done by companies. Um, The basic science is done by the NIH. Um, And so ultimately it's an ecosystem uh, where we all need to work together. And rather than set a goal, I would say we need to say we've got to be making measurable progress. And we should see an acceleration of that progress, not just a linear trend, but more of an exponential trend. Because of the beauty of the science now is lending itself to platforms that might be useful across a whole variety of diseases.
1: As a referee here, when you look at the companies working on rare disease treatments, what have you found to be the most effective ways of motivating more progress, doctor?
2: Well, um, it is very important for the FDA to be in tip top shape here because uh, companies are funded by investors who are looking for a return on capital. And so they have to have a case that they'll be able to get a product through the FDA if it's good. Now, having said that and assuming that we are highly motivated to get better and better at the FDA and how we function, in order for the companies to succeed, they have to have uh, first-rate science. They have to develop assays that are predictable and measurable. They have to have a technology which is scalable um, and high quality. And very importantly, particularly in rare disease, they need to work with the rare disease patient groups. Since these uh, people are scattered across the country and really across the world, and there aren't large numbers in any single place, it means that we need groups of patients to band together and work with the companies, always keeping everything um, uh, in line in terms of the science. Because most things that we try are not going to work. We already know that but there will be enough that work now that tremendous progress can be made. But it's gotta be done efficiently, which means an ecosystem that works together.
1: You mentioned the patient groups. I'd like to come back to that in a moment, but first talking about the ecosystem, you've obviously spoken about the FDA's role, the companies working here. I'd like to think about other parts of government, for instance, Congress. Congress 40 years ago enacted the Orphan Drug Act, which was intended to spur more development uh, of rare disease treatment. Is there more work that Congress needs to do now, Doctor, to give your agency tools to combat rare diseases?
2: This may be one of the rare times where you'll hear me say that we don't need that much from Congress at this point. (laughs) We can always tweak the system, but we have tremendous tools in our disposal uh, as it relates to FDA. Now, there are things that are outside of the FDA's primary swim lane, if you will, where um, I think as a society, we're gonna have to think carefully about what to do. For example, if you think about 10,000 rare diseases and the patients that are involved as these clinical trials get done and the care that they need, this is mostly going to need to happen in academic medical centers that have the specialty expertise to provide the care that's needed. And that gets directly into the NIH and the professional groups and the academic health systems. And let's assume that um, we, had, just for fun, let's say we had a 1,000 cures on the horizon right now. Uh, There's not a model that I know of that will actually fund the R&D from the private sector at the level that's going to be needed. So that's going to need some work. Then let's assume that uh, all 1,000 worked. How would society pay for the treatment? Right now the treatment's expensive. Now these latter things are not primarily in our lane. And it might be a place where Congress will need to act, but first we've got to come up with the ideas together. And so there's a lot of good discussion going on and in this rare disease week that we're in this week. I expect there'll be some pretty exciting ideas.
1: I did want to ask one follow-up on Congress. We got an audience question here that I'd like to read from Jessica in Virginia. She asks, can you speak to the proposed Promising Pathways Act sponsored by Senator Braun? to create a, quote, conditional approval pathway for rare disease drugs and whether that would be a useful tool for FDA. Commissioner?
2: Well, Dan, as you know, we're um, not allowed to speak uh, in detail about legislation that's in a proposal phase, and I'd say it's evolving. I'm on record as saying we need to be creative about um, our approach and do what's gonna be most effective. Whether uh, you know a conditional approval, it's a technical term. Um, this probably requires uh, too much detail to get into in this discussion. Let's just say we're, we're uh, working with Senator Braun's team and the FDA team. Our job is to give technical assistance. In the vein, uh, the analogy of referee that I use, the rule book is written by Congress, not by the FDA. Our job is to interpret the rules and apply them um, on the field. The field is the medical product development arena. So we're open and interested in the discussion, wanna be as creative as we can, but we also really wanna make sure that we don't start putting products out there that are ineffective or dangerous uh, without the appropriate uh, human clinical research being done.
1: You've mentioned the broader questions for society in terms of paying for these treatments, the cost, That is on the mind of our readers as well. I'd like to take another uh, reader question from Leonard in Massachusetts who asks, medications developed to treat rare diseases tend to be extraordinarily expensive. If drugs become unaffordable, it is as if they do not exist at all. This becomes more problematic as more of these drugs are developed. What can be done to keep the prices for these drugs low enough to afford? Dr. Caleb.
2: Well, Dan, uh, first of all, let me just say this is outside of FDA's lane. You know that we're prohibited actually by law from considering costs in our decisions at the FDA. I am um, a principal uh, at the table at Health and Human Services where these issues get discussed. So given that it's not in my lane, I would just say um, we are gonna need creative approaches to um, paying for these therapies. For example, It's understandable that the cost up front is going to be high, but, for example, with gene editing, it may be you only need to get treated once and you've got a treatment. So there are ideas on the table like um, amortizing the cost over time rather than paying for it all up front. But none of these are in statute yet. Um, There are many potential ideas, and we're just going to have to be uh, creative in how we uh, handle it.
1: You have invoked the word creative quite a few times already with me. I know this has come up before when you've talked about the creative approaches needed to combat rare diseases. Are there creative approaches that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to expand upon?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, it's so exciting the, the way science has come. You mentioned the um, Orphan Drug Act, but right along with that, I think comes to the Human Genome Project where Um, Based on the ideas that some people had, our country made a big bet through the NIH, um, and also the private sector invested in um, understanding the human genome. Now, here we are. We can actually look at a specific gene, edit it, snip out the gene, put in a new one. There are other ways of modifying gene function, but we don't know the long-term effects of these. So one example of a creative thing we're going to need to do is figure out how to follow people over the course of 20, 30 40 years after treatment, because we don't know what the long-term risks and benefits are going to be for sure, and our approval pathways will give us a moment in time where it's reasonably likely that the benefit will far outweigh risk, but we got to develop methods of measuring that and getting the follow-up studies done. Somebody like me that's been a clinician and an electronic health records person, there is a lot of room for creativity in how we use data, particularly with uh the way competing is changing now with AI and quantum computing on the horizon.
1: I'd like to talk a bit about patient groups or as some might think citizen scientists, the folks who are activated here around these diseases. Many patients with rare diseases, their families, have had to become citizen scientists, advocating for their own treatment or the development of treatments. Doctor, how do you see these folks driving medical treatment today?
2: Well, you know, my career as a uh, cardiologist working in intensive care units, the intense interaction that occurs when someone is critically ill or has a threat of being critically ill, you know, it's hard. to I think we all have a feeling for it. It's hard to describe unless you're in the middle of it. I think the thing that has really changed and is taken to heart very much by the FDA, and I think most people now in the medical ecosystem, is that no one knows more about the problems or the diseases they have or the issues that are involved things that need to be solved through therapeutics. No one knows more than the people who have the diseases, their families, and those who care for them. And what's also become clear, and I think this goes back to the days of HIV. um, I happened to be an intern in San Francisco in uh, 1978. We had patients with HIV. We didn't know what it was. Uh, Development was slow in the view of the patients. They banded together and became part of the solution. It went from being angry at the system to taking a view where uh, you're angry to the extent that you want there to be impatience, but you band together to get the studies done because what the HIV community learned was that a lot of our best ideas don't work and you don't want to be promulgating treatments out of desperation that don't work, which means that if you band together, get the studies done efficiently, make sure that um, if there is a positive study that the treatment uh, is made available in a way that's fair, that is a tremendous value that patient advocacy groups um, can play. And it's especially important in rare diseases, as I said, because people are scattered all over the place and they need to form networks of people who work together toward this end. You know, I would point to cystic fibrosis and type one diabetes as cases where, Things have moved along at lightning speed compared to most other diseases because the patient groups got highly organized. My observation at FDA is as a public health agency, it's our responsibility to help people band together. And it it, it was so obvious to me that uh, groups that were highly effective did better because it attracted investment, it attracted new ideas, it attracted clinicians and scientists. But it's not fair if you happen to be a patient with a disease that's not very effective for advocacy. Mm -hmm. I think it's our responsibility to help make that happen.
1: Well, let's talk about one of those patients. There is an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this week by Judy Stecker, a former senior HHS official, criticizing the FDA for being too slow to help save her son from a rare disease. She writes, though I know firsthand that the FDA's civil servants are committed to their mission, The agency's onerous bureaucracy impedes access to possible treatments with no meaningful gain for patients. And Ms. Stecker goes on to say that FDA could make more experimental drugs available faster, especially for children facing life threatening diseases, talking about broadening the use of accelerated approval, other tactics. Doctor, what would you say to Ms. Stecker and other families like hers?
2: Well, first of all, we um, uh, are very concerned. We don't want bureaucracy to hold things up. Um, And there's always a balance, as I said, between giving people access to a potentially beneficial therapy and the tragedy that occurs when someone takes a therapy and it turns out to cause harm in and of itself. And, of course, um, in a place this big with so many things going on, there's always a chance that an individual Situation will not be handled in the best possible way. So, I I won't comment on Ms. Stryker's particular situation, but I'll just say um, we're not perfect. And um, we, as a public health agency, um, accept that people should be publicly calling attention to areas where they think we're not doing the best job. And we're going to do our best uh, to try to fix it where we believe that's the case. But, you know, Dan, it's also uh, true that there um, is nothing as harmful as someone believing they've got a cure or treatment for a disease when they're being misled by the people that are selling that product. And so we have a role to play, which is set by society, to say the rule book written by Congress. And we need to play by the rules, um, as does uh, everyone. The good news, I think, for those who want earlier access is that the American people have spoken. The laws give earlier access than ever before i've just been to europe um we had good discussions about this and i think we're doing pretty well compared to most countries but as i mentioned having said that we can always do better uh we welcome the feedback as painful as it may do and we'll try to do the best we can
1: in the time that we have left i wanted go ahead doctor
2: just wanted to mention one quick thing that i want to emphasize because we've been talking about a lot lately This revolution in science is mostly about genes, gene products, and the ability to intervene and affect a particular gene or a product made by a gene that's a measurable um, intermediate marker, so-called biomarker. That's where the big action is right now. And that is something where we're really thinking hard and working on how do we accelerate those pathways because we have a pretty tried and true scientific method that gives us confidence. There are a whole variety of other therapies for rare disease which don't create biomarkers that we can measure reliably. That's a much more difficult problem that requires more of the old methods in order to have uh, the confidence that's needed that the benefits outweigh the risks. So just wanted to get that out there. It's a topic that there'll be a lot of discussion about.
1: Another topic where there's been quite a bit of discussion, artificial intelligence. You've spoken about the potential of AI to improve medical research? Have you seen compelling evidence that that is happening?
2: Well, Dan, I think, you know, my entire career has been built around uh, practicing medicine, using computers, developing algorithms that are used in practice. So when we say AI, you know, it means so many different things to different people. Um, If you said, are there examples where algorithms have been used Uh, to improve target discovery? Absolutely. Uh, That is to know which targets to approach. Um, If we just look at something that's really, I think one of the uh, wonders uh, of the world, the ability to tell about the folding of genes, of proteins, and how that occurs, that is having dramatic impact right now on uh, product development. The design of clinical trials has always been helped by um, simulating trials in an artificial environment. That's getting better and better um, thanks to algorithms and AI, but I think the best is yet to come and much of it will actually occur in something that sounds mundane. It's the administrative processes that are involved in research and clinical care, which need to be painstaking because an error made in transferring uh, something from one piece of paper to another can be critical to uh, destroying a clinical trial or a drug development process or a new device, um, generative AI has a promise to both automate that and speed it up, but also put in checking systems that are, could make it much more um, accurate and much easier to trace exactly who was handling the data and what was done with it. Now, that sounds very bureaucratic and administrative, but um, if you've ever seen where an analysis got screwed up, accidentally or someone manipulated an analysis on purpose and how hard it has been to discover that, uh, you'd come to appreciate that um, th- this is going to be a big area of AI. It's very akin, akin Dan, to what's going to happen in clinical medicine, um, where the, you, know, you probably may have been to see a doctor recently. You'll notice the doctor is busy clicking boxes on a computer to get the billing right while also trying to talk with you. Uh, Generative AI is going to be able to generate those notes, give us um, evidence for research, uh, and also maybe enable your doctor and nurse to actually pay attention to you instead of the computer.
1: Do you feel like there's too much hype, though, around AI, doctor? There has been talk that AI will help us cure all manner of diseases within the century. are Are we overshooting its potential?
2: Well, all of these things have life cycles of hype and despair, and then back to an even point. And uh, AI, if you look historically, has uh, been through decades of hype that then ended in despair. I um, have to admit, I'm an enthusiast right now that we're going to see tremendous progress in a short period of time. It's sort of a tipping point, um, if you will. Will it cure all of our ails? No. Will it create new problems? Yes. Um, You know, hallucination of generative AI is an example where you get going and it starts making things up that you didn't want to be there. Uh, The recent problems at Google with uh, drawing pictures that um, were incorrect uh, because of the way the algorithms were biased is another good example. So it's not all uh, positive. Regulation is going to be important because like all big time technologies, it can do good and it could also do harm and we need to help the industry steer itself uh, towards that part of doing much more good than harm. But I have to admit, I'm a great enthusiast right now for the potential. Just quickly to apply to rare disease, imagine you have a disease that only a thousand people in the world have. Right now, whether the right diagnosis is made is mostly a matter of where you're lucky enough to see a clinician in a particular clinic at a particular point who happen to be thinking beyond what most clinical people would think about. In the future, generative AI should give that clinician access to the world's literature instantaneously and also enable um, finding out when you present with a situation that's not common, that you may have a rare disease of a particular type. We're seeing hints of that in what I think is a spectacular project at NIH. in the undiagnosed rare disease project being done there. And then beyond that, it can say, let's hook you up with all the other people that have your same problem. So you can find a company working on a treatment and you can get a clinical trial done. I, I don't think we're that far away from a situation that would look radically different. Most people with rare disease now undergo what they call a diagnostic odyssey, where it takes multiple visits and often misdiagnoses through many episodes before the diagnosis is finally made. I think we can change that.
1: In the 30 seconds we have left, Doctor, I'd like to take it from potential to uh, present. The FDA has been seeking to enact a ban on menthol tobacco. You've argued for that ban. What's the status of that effort?
2: Well, um you know it's publicly known that um we finished our uh work and moved the, the uh rule into um o m b and we don't control the timelines in uh o m b and I'm just hopeful that um this will get uh through in a short period of time we're um you know this is a high priority for us that's not news uh, we've been saying it for several years now. So uh, all I can say is that we're hopeful.
1: Okay. Well, we are just about out of time. We'll have to leave it there on menthol and rare disease. Dr. Caleb, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live today.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks a bunch.
1: And don't go anywhere. My colleague Francis Steed Sellers will be back in just a minute. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post
3: newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
0: Good afternoon, I'm Kate McCamless, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Harmony Biosciences. A warm welcome to our discussion about modernizing rare disease drug innovation, featuring our esteemed guest, Congressman Greg Harper, who served as the U.S. Representative for Mississippi's third congressional district from 2009 to 2019. A dedicated advocate and public servant for rare diseases, He is also a devoted father to a son living with Fragile X syndrome, a rare condition that's characterized by intellectual and developmental challenges. Before we begin our conversation, I want to note that Harmony Biosciences is pleased to sponsor the Washington Post's inaugural program, Shining a Light on People Affected by Rare Diseases in America, a significance magnified as we commemorate Rare Disease Day 2024. At Harmony, we put patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to elevating discussions that address both the challenges and the progress happening in rare disease research with unwavering empathy and innovation. We're excited to have Congressman Harper here today to share his insights about modernizing research for rare disease treatments, with a particular emphasis on making clinical trials more accessible. Additionally, it's worth noting that Congressman Harper consults for Harmony as part of his overarching dedication to advancing innovation and accessibility for people living with rare diseases. Congressman Harper, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. I wanna begin our conversation by asking as both a father and an advocate for Fragile X syndrome, would you share with us some of your insights and personal experiences of caring for someone with a rare disease?
4: Okay first of all thanks for uh, letting me be on this uh, program and uh, thank Harmony and certainly the Washington Post uh, for making this available. I think it's so important and when we look at this it's really all about uh, these these special children and they sort of are you know become our world and caregiving is, is a very uh, challenging aspect. Uh, I can say that my wife did all the heavy lifting uh, when Livingston, our son with Fragile X, was little. Uh, she was the one that had to drive him to uh, speech therapy, occupational therapy, doctor's appointments, other things that needed to be done to make his life uh, better. But the caregiving is not just while we're trying to raise these children with Fragile X uh, it's, and other rare diseases. It is, what do we do long-term? What's the caregiving aspect going to be when uh, when they're adults, uh, when those parents that have poured everything into these children are gone? So the caregiving issue is always out there. It's one that we've got to continue to have that discussion. Uh, the journey we had with uh, have had with Livingston was not the journey we planned on, but it's been great and we're so thankful.
0: Well, and you've done such a a wonderful job being both his father and his advocate and really using your voice for others as well. We talk a little bit about, uh, you know, all of the the responsibilities of a caregiver. And when you think about participating in clinical trials, can you elaborate a little bit on some of those challenges or maybe opportunities for ensuring broader participation in trials, especially for, you know, families like yours where there is uh, an individual with a rare disease?
4: Look, it's uh, clinical trials are so important and, and so uh, great uh, to do, but it is also keep in mind that these families have the regular challenges, but then it becomes really overwhelming. And these families are just, they sometimes just don't know what to do. Maybe they don't have the resources to do these things. And so you know you're dealing with all of these different therapies just the challenges of having that child with those special needs and then oh by the way do you have time to to participate in a multi-year clinical trial and it's just it's almost too much to take in so uh, the opportunities are obvious you have the opportunity to advance uh, treatments uh, to look for cures to to make that life better for that particular rare disease but the challenges are, what do you wind up doing? What can you do to make their lives a little easier to participate in that clinical trial? Uh, perhaps it's reducing the number of actual in-person clinical visits that you need to do. Or you, you know, making sure that those parents understand that there's, no, there's not gonna be a cost to them. It's gonna be covered if they have to travel out of state or come spend the night or do whatever. But if you can do more from home, whether that's a telehealth aspect Or whatever it it lets those parents relax a little bit and know hey i can do this and it is for the good of my child and and i want to participate
0: you know you you've mentioned some of those flexibilities and your experience as both a congressman and an advocate uh for rare disease really put you in a unique position to talk a little bit about this can you talk about you know public policies and and uh rare diseases and what things could maybe be done to to Uh, hasten clinical research and make trials a little more accessible?
4: Well, when I came into uh, Congress in 2009, I was the only member of the House or Senate that had a a child with Fragile X syndrome. So nobody knew what Fragile X syndrome really was. And so the first step for that rare disease is always increasing awareness. Uh, Everybody wants to go up to D.C., whether it's on their advocacy day or, or whatever it may be. Uh, to meet with their member, I will tell you that perhaps the staffer is more important than the member because the staffer is the one that has more time to spend on it. Uh, and you want to have that that inroad there uh, to do those things. But from a policy standpoint, funding is an obvious one. You have to have the money to do the research on these. And we we certainly want to make sure that uh, the FDA has the the tools and resources that they need uh, to go through this process, and and I and I certainly think it's important from a policy standpoint that we understand that rare diseases don't have the same population uh, that is there, and so you have to, you want to have that uh, flexibility uh, that we would uh, certainly believe the the FDA. Uh, wants to get these things across the the finish line on clinical trials. Uh, And this is something we can't do without Congress, we can't do without FDA working together on this and working together for these clinical trials to get uh, to that conclusion that we believe uh, can be life-changing. Because every one of these families is looking for hope. And Congress uh, and other agencies, particularly FDA, have the opportunity to give these families a lot of hope uh, that just may not exist right now.
0: Now, oh, that is so true. I, as we finish our, our conversation here, I just want to express my heartfelt thanks to Congressman Harper for sharing your invaluable insights and your personal journey with us today. Your dedication and uh, and, and advocacy is just so amazing. And I I believe it's brought such a profound depth to our conversation here. So thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Kate. I really appreciate the opportunity and excited about the future for all of our kids. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for joining us as well as we all work together toward a future where every patient's journey is met with understanding, compassion, and above all, as Congressman Harper said, hope. I'd like to now turn it back over to The Washington Post.
3: And now back to Washington Post Live.
5: Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Francis steed Sellers, as an associate editor here at the Washington Post. To continue this conversation about rare diseases, I'm glad to welcome two more guests, Katie Gregg, who is the co-founder of the Lilly and Blair Foundation, and Rich Hogan, who is the founder and CEO of Cure Rare Diseases. Katie and Rich, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to have you both. Katie, I'd love to start with you, if I may, to give us a little bit of a backstory about how you came to be involved with rare disease research. Of course, of course. Thank you for
6: having me this afternoon. I I continue to learn so much from Commissioner Califf and Congressman Harper. And of course, I'm honored to be here alongside Rich. So thank you again. Um, Just to set the scene, my daughter, Lily, was diagnosed with a swift and severe neurodegenerative disease about two and a half years ago and right now she's just one of 17 known cases and when you receive a rare ultra rare diagnosis there's these sort of personal pieces that were this sort of new normal you learn how to navigate so whether it's equipment modifications therapies medications insurance what have you um, Those are sort of the immediate things I dealt with for a while. And then I moved on to this thought of, well, what can I do? How can I have hope? How can I give my daughter hope? And I educated myself. And I learned that 95% of rare diseases don't have an approved treatment. It takes 15 years to develop a rare disease drug. 50% of rare diseases affect children. And that 3,000 children die each day from a rare disease. That's the size of one Super Bowl stadium a month. And I know that rare disease numbers are small, but when framed that way, it doesn't seem so small. Those numbers are not insignificant. Um, those timelines are, are not acceptable. But they are motivating, and that's sort of how I ended up as this civilian scientist, right My emotional connection to the disease propelled me. And in the last year, we've formed our foundation, participated in studies and research programs, partnered with the NIH, and we're at a place now where we are ready to fund some incredible programs that show promise of getting to clinical trial. And I highlight these things because they're all the direct result of contributions from citizen scientists, myself, patients, patient organizations, And our ability to break down silos, fundraise, bridge knowledge gaps. You know, I am in no way a a researcher, a scientist, a clinician. But at the end of the day, Lily and Blair and too many kiddos and rare disease patients just like them don't have the luxury of time. And the reality is that I am where I am today because the system is not where it should be.
5: Thank you, Katie, for that very stirring uh, introduction. Rich, you also have a very personal connection to this field of research. Tell us your backstory just briefly.
3: i uh, happy to, and first off, you know, thank you for, for having me and Cure Rare Disease uh, on this, this event on Rare Disease Day. Uh, it's It's wonderful to be here to share more uh about the story uh you know we just heard from from one story and and my story is a little bit different uh i have a younger brother who had a rare form of muscular dystrophy uh, called duchenne muscular dystrophy and so with uh, lack of available treatments or therapeutics to help treat terry um, i formed a collaboration of researchers and clinicians across the united states to help develop a therapeutic to to help save terry um DMD as it's abbreviated, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is a fatal muscle wasting disease that's very progressive. And so uh, like many rare diseases, uh, time is not our friend. And unfortunately, given Terry's unique rare mutation, uh, he was sort of a rare patient within a rare disease. And so over the time span of about three years, uh, we went from the academic bench uh, to the patient bedside with a uh, genome editing therapeutic. Unfortunately, uh, given the lateness in which we arrived to be able to treat Terry, um, unfortunately, uh, we, we were not successful in, in rescuing him from the disease. Uh, but the basis of our, our work continued with advancing therapeutics for other rare diseases, building from the framework that we'd established for Terry to help others who were in a similar boat. Uh, Faced with a disease that was too rare to attract commercial interest, to no fault of of industry, but simply because the mechanism isn't there to be able to treat uh, ultra-rare diseases as we know it today. And so, as we stand in 2024, we face ourselves with a situation where, in a lot of these cases, the technology exists to be able to tackle these diseases, but the societal mechanism for how do we pay for these, similar to Dr. Califf's comments earlier, um, are yet to be figured out. You know,
5: Katie, we had. Commissioner Califf, talk about the importance of patients and their families in fighting. And you use the term citizen scientist yourself. Tell me about some of the particular challenges, for example, in gaining funding to promote research. What have you been through and what have you learned?
6: Of course, um, you know, rare disease drug development is incredibly expensive. And it's add to that that it's extremely hard to fundraise for something that people know little to nothing about. So that's where your sort of education and awareness piece comes in. And this is something that citizens, scientists, researchers, um, clinicians can really come together to spread that information. Um, when you are able to get the funding, then you run into additional challenges of this, this bucket of funding that you do have can really be divided between finding a treatment understanding the disease, if maybe you don't know the pathophysiology or the mechanism of the disease, uh, attracting more researchers to the field. And that just kind of dilutes how much you're able to contribute to any of the really equally important areas.
5: Rich, you referred to this extraordinary triumph, you the success you had in bringing a, a treatment, a custom treatment for your brother to trial. As you said, it didn't end the way you would hope. But Talk to us about some of the challenges as the leader of a nonprofit biotech of moving this process ahead because you've faced huge hurdles, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know I, I would say there's there's obviously a lot of challenges when it comes to forging a new path where where none existed before. Um, I think some of the challenges that we face, you know range from how do we how do we identify, uh, relevant investigators, and relevant academics working working in the space. How do we bring them together? Um, other challenges include regulatory challenges. There isn't uh, yet uh, a framework for uh, advancing ultra-rare non-commercial diseases uh, in a way that is uh, clear and and reliable. Um, the third challenge, and I would say one of the biggest challenges, is really how do we pay for this? Uh, you know, we heard from Katie in talking about. You know, things that we have to fundraise for. Um, Conveying the message of rare disease in general is a challenge. And so, you know, when we look at how do we sustainably pay for these therapeutics for a population that may not be commercializable, maybe there's 10 patients, maybe there's 50 patients, it doesn't warrant a commercial model. And so, you know, the big challenge we face nowadays is how do we convince uh, payers, regulators, uh, to look at ultra rare disease in a way in which it, it, it does make sense to provide reimbursement for a therapeutic, albeit maybe not through the traditional uh, manner that more common and chronic diseases have have traditionally um, utilized.
5: You know, you know, Katie, I'm just stunned. You used the number 17 um, cases of the, of the disease that your daughter Lily suffers from. And yet you have worked to bring together experts. You've worked with NIH, I think, to bring together experts to sort of mm-hmm. Crowdsource their expertise for you. Tell us about that process. It's taken you into NIH, into these extraordinarily arcane parts of research. How's it worked? What have you learned through these (laughs) experts? We've learned
6: learned quite a bit. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. we are still very much a newcomer to this space, but you know, we've been really fortunate in our ability to sort of bring together these groups, these researchers, these scientists from all across the globe. The um, symposium we held in December, partnering with NIH, was the largest collective effort to date focused on de novo SPG4. Um, We had about 30 researchers in the room when you're talking about a a nano rare disease that is no small feat. Um, And, you know, these outcomes just continue to ripple from that meeting. We have Calls every week. We're pushing forward. We're making sure that they stay connected and we're keeping that transparency there, making sure those silos stay broken down. And, you know, that's the challenge is that not one person, not one group, not one institution has all of the pieces to this puzzle. So that's where we as civilian scientists can kind of project manage the process, if you will, and try to to bridge those gaps.
5: You know, we have a lot of interest from our audience and Rich, I'd like to ask you a question that comes from Louise in Washington State. And Louise asks, what can be done to increase publicity and research support for rare diseases? People shouldn't have to beg in order to stay alive just because they're unlucky. Wow, those are powerful words from Louise.
3: They are, uh, and and unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that is the reality of the situation. Um, sharing the family story, talking about the the progress that's being made with research, these things become necessary in order to convince uh, individuals to to donate. You know, ten dollars, hundred dollars, $1, a thousand dollars, whatever you have it. Um, Unfortunately, that is the case right now. But I I agree with the uh, implication of Louise's question that we need to bring more awareness to this concept that rare disease in aggregate is not, in fact, very rare. Uh, there were some statistics earlier uh, in the program that talked about the, the prevalence of rare disease, and, and, and in an effort to, to build upon those statistics, you know, 10% of the United States is impacted by a rare disease. This is more than very, uh, more talked about diseases that, that we hear in the news almost every single day. And so when we look at rare diseases in aggregate, you know, it's important that we consider how do we bring on additional funding mechanisms to treat rare disease broadly. Uh, comments have been made from from the NIH around looking at rare diseases uh, in aggregate. And I agree with those comments in the sense that we can't go disease by disease by disease to develop treatments and therapeutics for. It'll take too long and we'll lose far too many people. And so if we start to look at How do we employ additional policy tools, more funding, more streamlined and efficient funding to be able to get to the researchers who need it, not with a nine month grant review cycle, but in a more efficient time scale. Uh, That is one thing that we can do as as a public to be able to encourage our elected officials to put pressure on organizations, governmental funding bodies to encourage them to provide more funding and quicker funding for for rare disease therapeutic development. I think we we often can't look at these as commercial endeavors. Many of these rare diseases will never be commercialized. 17 patients, one patient is not a commercial endeavor, and that's okay. These folks need treatment all the more, uh, not simply because they're one out of 17 instead of one out of 10 million.
5: So, so Katie, that comment of riches brings me straight to you. The business of going disease to disease to disease and makes me want to ask you about your goals here. Obviously, we'd love to find a cure or a treatment, but it feels to me as we are approaching this with broader goals too. Of course, yeah, I think
6: um, this is one of the most interesting, interesting things to me, right? Sort of this disease mechanism versus a path to a treatment or a cure. And they're really both equally important. Um, the pathophysiology of my daughter's disease is not completely understood. We, as of right now, can't determine if it's a gain of function, a loss of function, a toxic protein, haploinsufficiency. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't find a treatment or cure, but it does make it more challenging. So it's important to know that there really is a dual importance of understanding the disease mechanism while simultaneously pursuing treatment or cure options. The the pathophysiology is valuable, but waiting for a full understanding of it really can delay clinical research. So again, 15 years to develop a drug for a rare disease is an incredibly long time and, and too long for a lot of patients in the rare disease space. And I think it was around 45% of orphan drugs approved by the FDA between 1983 and 2018 uh, targeted conditions with incomplete pathophysiological understanding. So that's, that's a pretty persuasive number. And As we make advancements in the research for treatment or cure, that can lend some valuable insights into the mechanism of the disease. So you kind of get this reciprocal relationship between understanding and intervention. So uh, you know we definitely support uh, those parallel efforts.
5: Which we we were just hearing from Katie about the mechanism of the disease, but also we heard from Commissioner Caleb about He he talked about the beauty of science and the revolution. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing with AI and CRISPR and other developments that could maybe change this landscape entirely.
3: Well, I, I, I agree with the comments in the sense that the landscape is changing rapidly, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the tools and technology exists today to treat some of these most devastating diseases it's it's the it's the financing mechanisms that we lack. But when we look at the programs that, for instance, cure Rare disease is focused on you know we're we're looking to treat diseases uh, of a neuromuscular or neurodegenerative nature with technologies such as genome editing can we go in for some of our diseases and actually uh, remove toxic uh, duplications of a genetic code that result in a, in a non-functional or non-existent protein and and we are seeing that we're seeing that at the in vitro level or the in the patient cell line level um, as well as uh, engineered and humanized animal models that have a version of the uh, humanized uh, gene of interest uh, in the animal uh, that we're able to actually go in and correct. And so the, these tools and technologies aren't things of sci-fi, they are very much here. Uh, instances where we're able to replace uh, faulty genes uh, delivered in a, in a non-pathogenic virus, for instance, with uh, the work that we're spearheading for limb-girdle muscular dystrophies, uh, as well as the work with antisense oligonucleotides, or ASOs, where we are attempting to skip a toxic part of a gene to be able to allow for the, the production of a, of a shorter yet functional protein as we're doing with spinocerebellar taxia type three or, or SCA3 as it's abbreviated. So uh, it's, it's impressive to see the, the, the breadth and depth of technology that exists. Now, by no means is it perfect. Uh, how we deliver these therapeutics is one of the biggest challenges, especially for neuromuscular diseases. Muscle comprising about 40% of our body's mass raises uh, the challenge of how do we effectively deliver genes that express proteins that aren't outside the cell but are inside the cell and how do we get inside those cells in an efficient safe uh, and and effective manner are still questions that, that we continue to grapple with but by no means is this you know the the 1940s or 50s, where you know it's 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 only small molecules or it's almost virtually only small molecules. Here we have the tools and technology to be able to edit genes, replace genes, um, and and fix faulty genes. But we there's still a lot of work to do.
5: A lot of work to do, and we're getting close to the end of time. But Katie, I would like to bring in another audience question, and this one comes from Elaine in New York, and Elaine asks might not research on rare diseases hold the key to treatments not only for those disorders, but for a whole family of more common related disorders? Very interesting question.
6: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's so important. Um, Despite the rarity of our, our specific conditions, we don't want to discount the potential for possible synergies and unexpected genetic links between seemingly distinct diseases. So for example, my daughter's specific mutation can be considered an upper motor neuron disease, just like ALS. And some of the best research in the world is focused on a cure for that. And some of her symptoms present like those of someone who's had a stroke or a severe spinal injury. So again, there's some linkages there that can be really valuable. So we need to challenge the notion of genetic siloing, even treatment of symptoms, and find those common pathways to sort of bridge those gaps between rare disease populations and larger populations.
5: Rich, the last word to you, but what word do you have for the larger science community? And it has to be quick. What message do you have about what you've learned and what they should take from these sorts of investigations into rare diseases as they look into other disease processes?
3: Well, the final word has to be collaboration, right? I think uh, Katie echoed these comments. Others have echoed these comments. This idea that we need to put uh, politics and and publications aside and work together for the greater good. Um, It's how we have advanced therapeutics, it's how others have advanced therapeutics effectively, is the idea that it's it's the patient and the patient family who are suffering the most from, from this disease and that we need to put aside um, differences to be able to come to work together to solve these. Uh, you know, this is a team sport. At the end of the day, drug development is is the collection of individuals who are experienced at a variety of different things. And that's how we've advanced our therapeutics effectively and efficiently at Cure Rare Disease. And that's what I would encourage others to do as well uh, so that we we can we can have more treatments and cures for these diseases that have historically been neglected and overlooked.
5: Collaboration and working together, I feel it's a, it's a message that echoes way beyond this program. So thank you both, Katie and Rich, for joining us today.
3: Thank you so much thank for having, having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.
4: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.